0: Good morning. Um, It's good to be back in Windsor. It's good to see so many familiar faces again. And it's good to see some new ones too. Um, It's quite strange being back in front of such a large crowd. Um, I'm not used to speaking to so many people all at once. Uh, Lamberg is a bit of a smaller church than this. I'm also not used to having a microphone in front of me, so I'll try to remember to keep facing it. Uh, Let's start with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship that we've just had, where we've been um, remembering who you are. We've been remembering your sovereignty and what you've done in our lives. And Lord, we pray that we can continue in this theme of worship as we open up your word, as we look to see a bit more about who you are and we learn about you. We just pray that we can learn more of you, learn to trust you more, and, and worship you with our lives. Amen. Now, as you're all aware, I'm up here as part of the preaching workshop, and the series that we're doing this time is we're going to be working through the first six books of Deuteronomy, first six chapters even of Deuteronomy, sorry. Um, Today I'm going to be looking at chapter one this morning, Dave Schofield will be looking at chapters two and three this evening, and then um, Tim Walk and Stephen Ray will be looking at chapters four to six in a couple of weeks' time. Before we start, um, I'd like to fill you into a little bit of the background of Deuteronomy. Um, I was trying to study your faces a little bit. Uh, As I mentioned, we'd be doing Deuteronomy, but I didn't get much of an idea of what you were thinking. You're obviously good at masking what you think. Uh, So I'll tell you some of the preconceptions that I had before I started uh, reading through the commentaries and reading around the book. Firstly, I thought of Deuteronomy as a book of the law. It's a book uh, called the Torah, or it's part of the Torah, uh, the Jewish law, and it lists a whole lot of regulations, and in it you'll find things like the Ten Commandments, you'll find lists of blessings and curses, so, so these are the things that were in my head. There's lots of lists of things, do's and don'ts, and blessings and curses, and um, And that's what it's about. And then I also remember doing a Bible study once in Deuteronomy and somebody told me that it meant the second law, Deuteronomy itself. So this is the law being given a second time to the Israelite people. It's the law being given to um, a new generation who hasn't heard it the first time. And so I I kind of wondered at the value of that because if it's been given before in the Bible, why are we looking at it the second time? Why don't we look at it the first time round rather than looking at it the second time round? I also thought not actually a lot happens in Deuteronomy. There's not much of a story. It's not like David slaying Goliath or um, Joseph going to Egypt or or one of those things. It's not not a gripping story. It's just lists of regulations. And um, I thought, well, I hope I can find something interesting to say about Deuteronomy. I hope hope I'm putting you off too much. But if you think about it, if, if you were going to study the Old Testament it's probably not the first place you would go. It's not somewhere where you'd take your children to take a Bible study uh, through the Old Testament. But um, this isn't the way everybody thinks about it. In fact, in the Jewish religion, Deuteronomy is the first book that they teach to their children. It's amazing, isn't it? And this is partly because of the Jude- Jewish religion. It's founded on the Mosaic Law, which is the Torah, and Deuteronomy contains the most complete compendium of all of these laws. So it gives you a good basis for their faith. Also, because Deuteronomy, uh, I mean, in Deuteronomy, the words for law that we have is Torah. Um, because it's translated into law in English, we tend to shy away from it. We think we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. Um, we probably don't want to look too hard at that. Um, so we tend to shy away from, from law or Torah. But Torah means more than just law. Torah in Hebrew actually means teaching or instruction. And it brings with it the whole ideas of um, guidance, help, and encouragement. So it's, it's not seen as something oppressive, but it's seen as a gift by the Jewish people to them. It's something that they should celebrate, something that they can cling to. It shows them how they should live So you may think that's all very well for the Jewish people. We're under a new covenant. They were under the old covenant and that told them how to live. They had these laws to guide them. We've got the Holy Spirit to guide us. We don't need these laws. Um, There's no point in us reading through Old Testament law. What value is it to us? But this isn't how the New Testament writers thought. Did you know that Deuteronomy is actually one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, along with Psalms and Isaiah? So it's obviously a very important book for us to read. Deuteronomy is also part of God's word. It's part of his revelation to us of who he is and what he thinks, what he's about. So it's important for us to read just because we know that God is unchanging, that he's the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. So it tells us something about our God. And although Deuteronomy does contain the law or more accurately the Torah, it's not just a list of laws um, for us to read. It's not a boring list of laws. It's actually constructed in form of sermons. These are sermons that Moses preached to the Israelite people before they entered the promised land. He was preparing them to receive God's promise. He was preparing them uh, to receive new leadership. He was preparing them for him leaving these are Moses' last words to the Israelite people. So they, what he thinks are the most important things that they should know as, as he hands over leadership. So this morning we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 1. And this is just an introduction to the first sermon that he preaches. So I'm doing a sermon on an introduction to a sermon. I'm just going to be reading verses 19 to 33 to you, but I'll try and give you a complete picture of, of what the book is, of what the chapter is about. In the first eight verses, Moses sets the sermon in context. He tells us who he is speaking to. He's speaking to the Israelite people, not the ones that left Egypt, but he's speaking to the children of the ones that left Egypt. The ones that left Egypt have now died in the desert, and these are the children of them. They're the ones that are going to receive God's promise. He tells us where they are. They're just east of the Jordan River. They're within reach of the promised land. They can see it, and they can probably smell it as well. It's just there. It's within reach. You know, it's within their senses, and they know that it's about time that they get in. It's, it's, uh, Moses talks about the timing of it all. It's 40 years after they've left Egypt. So, if they remember what God had said to them, how long their punishment would be, 40 years in the desert, then they'll know, they'll be excited because they're about to enter the land. Um, So, Moses is setting his sermon in context here. He also tells us where his message comes from. This isn't Moses' thoughts and ideas. He says that his message comes from God. It's direct guidance from God as to how they should live. Now, for us, we often ask for God's guidance. I know um, Richard will tell you, he's our fellowship group leader, that whenever we have a prayer night, um, one of the biggest requests is guidance. Um, It's it's either guidance or healing or, or something like that, but guidance is one of the big few. And Moses here is saying, you know, here is guidance. Here is what God wants you to do. He's telling them directly what God wants from them, and wouldn't we all love that? And then Moses uh, starts telling them about what has happened before, what has led them up to this point. And he continues in in this theme as as we go into verses 9 to 18. uh, He's telling them of what has happened before the first time that they approached the promised land. He's talking about the leadership structure that was in place at the time. Um, And the emphasis in this section is on trusting God and not on fearing man. So it's on trusting God, not fearing man. And if I read verses 17 and 18 to you, you'll see what I mean. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case that is too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time I told you everything you were to do. So what Moses is saying here is the people who entered the promised land the first time knew who they should be listening to. They knew they should be listening to God. They shouldn't be listening to man, they shouldn't be fearing any man, but they should be trusting God's judgment. And if they're unsure of how to make up their minds, they know that they can go to Moses, because Moses says, if any judgment is too hard for you, come to me, and I will tell you what to do, I will hear it, I'll give you God's judgment on it. So when they made their decision not to enter the promised land the first time, um, Moses is pointing out that that was wrong, that they knew that they shouldn't have done that. So let's read together verses 19 to 33. It's on page 178 in the Pew Bibles. Then, as our Lord commanded Moses, commanded us. So here Moses is talking about. He's still talking about the time when they were. Uh, entering the Promised Land the first time, when they were approaching it for the first time. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb, and we went towards the hill country of the Amorites, through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving to us. See, see, The Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid, and do not be discouraged. Then all of you came and said to me, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us, and to bring back a report about the route that we are to take, and the towns that we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man, from each tribe. They left, and they went up into the hill country, and they came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, "It is a good land that the Lord, our God, is giving to us." But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. He has brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the the hands of the Amorites and to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky, and we even saw Anakites there. So basically, Moses is telling them that they found the things just as God had told them they would be. They found a land that was flowing with milk and honey, with good fruit. They found the people there that God said would be there. God told them that they would be going and taking the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites. They knew what they were going to face. So sending the spies into the land just confirmed for them what God had told them. And then Moses continues in verse 29. Then I said to you, Do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God is going before you. He will fight for you, as he did in Egypt, before your very eyes. And in the desert, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey, in fire by night. And in cloud by day, to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way that you should go. So Moses here points out that God has never let them down in the past, so they've got every reason to trust him. Then in verses 34 to 46, we see God's anger at their rebellion. Um, We see the punishment that the Israelites are to receive. They're not going to inherit the promised land. Rather, their children will inherit it in their place. Um, They Basically, they've missed their opportunity to receive God's promise. And then they hear the punishment that they... um, When they've heard this punishment that they are to receive, uh, they try to repent, but it's too late. And they even try to enter the promised land on their own and fight for themselves. But um, they obviously fail because God isn't with them. They're defeated. They're driven back into the desert where they spend the rest of their days. So that's where the, where the chapter 1 takes us. So this part of Moses' speech, um, for me, is a bit like one of those great movie speeches uh, in which are made before epic battles in the movies. So some of you film buffs out there, I'm sure maybe Simon, will have noticed that Uh, The title for my sermon was actually taken from a speech in Gladiator. And in Gladiator, we've got a Roman army that's about to complete their campaign in Germania. Um, And this is a speech that their general, Maximus, makes to try and convince them to fight hard. Three weeks from now, I will be harvesting my crops. Imagine where you will be, and it will be so. Along the line, stay with me. If you find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun in your face, do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium and you are dead. What we do in life echoes in eternity. What Maximus is doing here is he's giving his army a motivation to fight, to keep going, to endure to the end. He's telling them that they cannot lose. They're either going to come home as champions or they're going to end up in paradise. Maximin gives them a big picture. He gives them an eternal perspective. He asks them how they want to be remembered. In the movie Braveheart, William Wallace, who's played by Mel Gibson, leads a small Scottish army against a bigger, better-equipped English army. And this is a situation not unlike the situation that these Israelites are facing, Um, They're a small army. They're facing bigger people, better equipped, uh, more ready to fight. And so understandably, the Scottish army, a bit like the Israelite army, is not keen to fight. And some of them are shouting out from the crowd saying, let's just run. Let's turn. We'll run and we'll live at least. And this is what William Wallace says. I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And dying in your beds, many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days, from this day to that, for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. William Wallace was challenging his people not to miss the opportunity that they had to fight for their freedom. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is going through a similar procedure. He's giving his people a choice of outcomes. A bit like Maximus and Gladiator, he's telling them that they cannot lose. And he backs this up. He reminds them of God's promise to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, See, I have given you this land. Go into it. Take possession of the land that the Lord swore that he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and to their descendants after them. So he's reminded them of God's promise to them, and then he also reminds them that God protects them on the way, and that he's always kept his promise. He has brought them out of the land of Egypt, the biggest army in the world at that time. The, the, the biggest nation to be feared was Egypt, and he had defeated them already. So, so what about these people? And he's fed them in the desert, he's guided them, and they've seen him do mighty things. If he is with them, who can be against them? They cannot lose. And then secondly, a bit like Mel Gibson and Braveheart, Moses tells them not to miss the opportunity that they have. He reminds them at the end of the chapter that their parents missed their opportunity by disobeying God, that they ended up living the rest of their lives in the desert, and he's giving them that option. Are you going to take the promise that God has given to you, or are you going to be like your parents and end up in the desert? Basically, what Moses is saying to them is, what you do in life echoes in eternity. He's asking them how they want to be remembered. Got a little bit of a game for us to play together. Um, I'm going to need some audience participation here. I have got a, a list of names up on the screen, and I'm going to read out some epitaphs. And I want you to guess who they were written about. Uh, For those of you who don't know what an epitaph is, an epitaph is just a short text about somebody who's died, usually in honor of them, just a memory of them. Okay, the first one. The author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and the father of the University of Virginia. Who is that about, of those names up there? Thomas Jefferson, that's right. PowerPoint skills are amazing. Okay. A master of comedy. This isn't about me. His genius in the art of humor brought gladness to the world that he loved. Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy. A tomb now suffices him for whom the world was not enough. Sorry? Alexander the Great, who had conquered most of the known world by the age of 33 when he died. Truth, history, 21 men. The boy bandit king, he died as he lived. Billy the Kid, that's right. And free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. The only one left, yeah. Martin Luther King who was the civil rights campaigner, as many of you will know. I have one final epitaph, which I'm going to put up on the screen. And I want you to guess who this could be about. These people saw God do amazing things. They knew his will. They experienced his provision. Yet, they did not trust him. Basically, Moses is giving this epitaph about the fathers of the the people who are about to enter Israel. So this is an epitaph that he's giving them. This is how your parents are remembered. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered like your parents who did not trust God? Or do you want to be remembered as a nation who trusted God and who received his promises? Who saw him do amazing things? What really stands out for me in this whole chapter is verse 26. And this is where Moses tells the people that they rebelled against God because they were unwilling to go up and fight against giants. Basically, they're saying that not tr- by not trusting God, they are rebelling against him. Now, this isn't the way I tend to think about the word rebel. I think it's a little bit harsh. Well, I would tend to think it's a bit harsh. When I think of the word rebel, I think of it as somebody who's deliberately opposing somebody else. Um, And it's not like the Israelites at this point were um, turning to other gods, although they didn't at other points. It's not like they were putting God down or joining with the enemy. They were just afraid of the size of the enemy that they saw ahead, and they they didn't trust that what would happen um, would be a positive outcome. Is this rebelling? Well, it says it is in in the Bible, and I believe it is for this reason. Basically... Not trusting God is denying who God is. Not trusting God is saying that God is either not good enough to keep his promises or not powerful enough to keep his promises. Not trusting God is a bad witness to the people around them. The people who had seen the Israelites not trusting God would have then doubted that God existed the Israelites were the people chosen by God to represent Him, And if they couldn't trust them, then who ever would? But of course, we would never do that. We would always trust God. Um, we would never rebel against God by not trusting him, would we? A bit like the Israelites, we too have seen God do mighty things, both in his word and in our history. Um, We know what the Israelite people knew. We know know that he rescued them from Egypt. We know that he parted the Red Sea, that he fed them in the desert. But we know so much more than them. We know that he sent Jesus to die for our sins. Uh, We know all of the miracles that Jesus performed when he was here on earth. Uh, We have seen in church history revivals. We have seen him work in amazing ways. We have seen in our own lives that he has brought us to himself and convicted us of our sins. So we have seen God do amazing things. Even today in Africa and Asia, there's stories coming out that people have been raised from the dead, healed of many diseases. Um, So God is at work in power today. We also know God's will. We have his Bible, which tells us what he wants from us. We have seen God's provision. Apparently the world has never been so rich. And the Christian world tends to be the Western world, and the Western world is the richest of the world at the moment. So, um, God has provided for us in many ways. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, how are we using that provision that he has given to us? Our challenge today is, how will we be remembered? What will we do with the opportunities that have been made available to us? What legacy are we going to leave our children? What will our generation be remembered for in the annals of church history? Will we be remembered as a people who trusted God, who obeyed him, who obeyed his will and saw him do mighty things, or will we be remembered as a people who didn't trust him and nothing happened in our generation? I'd like to finish with two questions. What has God asked us to do? And what is preventing us from doing it? Or what could be preventing us from doing it? The first question I expect will be answered more fully later on in the series um, as people go through some of um, the commandments, some of the, the rules, some of the laws. But... I'm going to try and give you a brief overview of what God has asked us to do. Jesus told us that the whole law was covered by two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. So we've been asked to love God. We've been asked to love others. We've also been given, as well as these great commandments, we've been given the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching, uh, sorry, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the end of an age. So, we've got to love others, we've got to love God, we're supposed to tell others about God, and teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. And we also get a promise with that, that he will be with us to the end of the age. And then in Micah 6, verse 8, in response to the question, what does the Lord require of you, we have this answer. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. To act justly, to look after the oppressed, to love mercy, to look after the needy, and to walk humbly with God. So we can see that we have in God's word clear instructions on how we should act. We're told in Corinthians um, that we are Christ's body. And we have to ask the question, if Christ was here on earth in this neighborhood, what would he be doing for his neighbors around him? Basically, by not doing what we've been told to do in the Bible, we are not trusting God, and we're not following, following him, and therefore we are rebelling against him. So when we don't follow God, we rebel. When we do, we don't. Second question. What's holding us back from trusting God? Or what are our giants? What are we afraid of? Now, I can't answer this question for all of you because I'm sure it's different for each person. Uh, Different things will get in the way of you trusting God. But these are some of the things that hold me back. Firstly, there's time. It's easy for me to make myself so busy that I don't have time to do anything for God. (coughs) Sorry. Sorry. And that's just an excuse. After all, if God is so amazing, if he does such amazing things through us, um, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what matters in terms of eternity? What we do in life echoes in eternity. So if we spend our life just working hard, doing all the things that we think we need to get done and never serve God, are we actually trusting God? Are we doing his will? So time... The second one is money. I can look around me and I can see so many people every day that earn more money than me, that have more money than me. Most people earn more money than me because I don't have a job, but but have more money than me. So just looking around and seeing different people with so much money, I I can tend to think, well, I don't need to invest too much of my finance into helping God or serving God or trusting God with my money. Um, this is just enough to get by. But in doing that, I'm forgetting that actually I'm in part of the wealthiest part of the world. Every single one of us in here are some of the wealthiest people in the world. And so we need to trust God with our money. We also need to remember that God is the one who provides us our money in the beginning anyway. Um, So if we are serving God, we shouldn't be worried about our finances. Uh, I heard a writer, some of you might have read his book, Brother Andrew, who said that he was working for the king and if he's working for the king, the king can always pay his wages. The king will provide um, for the work that he wants done. The third thing that's holding me back uh, from trusting God fully is a fear of rejection. I'm afraid of looking stupid or not being liked. And that's a fear that that I have to face every time I come up here to speak or, um, or go anywhere to speak or, or serve God in any way. There's always a fear that, that people are going to reject your message or reject you. And um, we're told very clearly in this passage that we should be fearing God and not man, that um, we should be trusting what he's asked us to do rather than fearing what, what man, men may think of what we, uh, what we do. And the final one is, I'm afraid to lose a comfortable and easy life. I'm afraid that if I trust God and I follow him the way he asks me to, that um, my life's going to have to change. It's going to get more difficult. I might have less leisure time or, or something like that. But there I'm forgetting the promise that God gave us through Jesus, where he said that I came to give you life and life in all its fullness. That our life won't be worse if we follow and trust him, but it will be better. I need to ask myself, am I really trusting God and obeying him? Or am I missing the opportunity to see him do mighty works through me to fulfill his promises in this generation? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves as a church. A bit like Israel, as they're about to enter the promised land... We are also entering a time of new new leadership in the church. What will this time bring for us? We need to remember that what we do in life echoes in eternity. I'd just like to finish with a prayer. Uh, It's a prayer by Thomas Merton where he talks about his struggle putting trust in God and he's, he's trying to do his best to put his trust in God. I'll put it up on the screen. So you can read it if you want to, um, but I'll, I'll pray it out to you. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do, this will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear. For you are ever with me and will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.